and then he's going to give this sermon, they're all ears. Like they're engaged, they're listening because this is a man who's claiming to bring the kingdom of God. And this started back in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram, the promise was given to Abraham that he would, they would, through him, there'd be many descendants and this would be God's people. It was reaffirmed under King David when it said, from your line, from your blood, the Savior will come. The, 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 the king of all kings would come through the line of David. So people, the, the Jewish people were anticipating this. They knew this was coming. The other major contextual kind of environment happening, though, is we have to remember that the Jews were living under the oppressive, often brutal thumb of the Roman Empire. So you had this Greco-Roman worldview that was being kind of shoved upon them, oppressing them, marginalizing them during this time. And one of the key kind of hallmarks of the Greco-Roman worldview was philosophy. Kind of the philosophers were esteemed in this culture, and they sat around and, and, try, and, and talked about the, the solutions to, to life's greatest questions. And one of the questions, if you read these philosophers, that they were always coming back to was this idea of happiness. How does a human being flourish? How does a human being thrive? How does a human, li- a human being live a life of virtue and meaning and these kinds of things? This was the culture that they were living in as well. So God's people were being oppressed by the Romans, but they were awaiting their king. And this philosophy was being pressed upon them. But now we need to ask the third contextual question is, what does this mean for us? So first we start with what, what, how were they hearing it? Now, how should we hear it in our context? What does this mean for us? How are we going to apply this? Well, I think the easiest, well, there's a lot of ways we can go with this, but, and we can spend all day talking about our culture and our context, but one of the easiest, I think, most clear ways for the majority of us is just to see how polarized we are right now in our country. We're very polarized, right? Like we, we have people from both sides of the aisle, if you want to use kind of the political spectrum here, um, there's, they're either bashing, bashing each other or they're talking past one another, it seems like. And we can't just sit down and talk and get things done. Okay, so there's this radical polarization here. So let's take a look at this a little bit. So on the one hand, you have conservatives. And I don't like that term necessarily, but that's what we're familiar with. It's not nuanced enough, but we'll use conservatives. And for conservatives, stereotypically, the good life, flourishing happiness, comes from time spent championing things like capitalism, free markets, the family, traditions, security from other nations, prosperity through economics. All of those things are kind of the, the things that the, the, the conservatives champion. And on the other side, you have the progressives. And again, I don't like that term. It's not nuanced enough. But the, for, for the progressive, the good life comes from time uh, deconstructing institutions that have brought oppression, uh, coming up with kind of new ideas of morality, where we can have our own sexuality and define our relationships however we want to. Um, the champion, uh, for the most part, diversity and justice. So you have these kind of talking points. And I think if you just pay any attention to the news, those are kind of the things that end up getting talked about. But I think there's more in common than typically these groups want to realize. And I think what we have uniting everyone here on earth right now is this, this postmodern culture that is shaping us and forming us more than we realize. And what this is causing is this radical individualism. Like we're all individuals and we all want to live our own life without, um, and have our own goals without any restrictions being placed 
upon us. We call this freedom, but it's really just kind of going with whatever wave the culture is throwing at us at this time. We, we, want, we want to get to make our own rules. We want to get to call the shots on what is right and wrong, what is moral and immoral. We want to define our identity on our own terms and don't want other people telling us what to do. You can compare other groups in our culture, I think, and find the same thing. On the surface, polarization. But underneath, there's some common things going on right now in our world that I think we have to dig into if we're going to honestly assess our context. If you just look at two people on different sides of the aisle here and you looked at, well, what do their spending habits look like? Probably pretty much the same. What is their view of time? Probably pretty much the same. What's their view of, of their body? Pretty much the same. Okay, so there's some things underneath groups of people that I think Jesus wants to deconstruct in our time as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And this, this, this freedom and this pursuit of freedom as individuals, um, it, it's not getting us what we think it, it should. It's not delivering on the promises. Uh, cl- studies are clear. We are the most anxious, self-medicated group of people at any time in the history of the world. So if freedom is so great and throwing off all kind of forms of people op- oppressing us and all authorities, shouldn't it lead to more freedom? And by all measures, it's not. We're not flourishing in our culture. Um, the medicine's never been better. Uh, there's never been more peace, at least for us, right? But yet, we're not happy by all measurements. And, and, and sociologists and psychologists study these things. So let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning. So I want to keep us on task here. How do I go through life and live in a state of happiness? What will lead me to flourishing? So here's the time for to ask ourselves some honest, an honest question. Is your life working? Like, is it working? And I don't mean externally with like having a job and a house and a car and having a, a nice family. I'm talking internally. How are you doing internally? How's your anxiety, stress, your fears, your hopes? How are you doing in these areas? And for a second, take out the things that I think we use for distractions like work and business and relationships and uh, forms of entertainment escape, social media. Like take those things aside if you can and ask, how am I doing inside right now? And am I living a life of flourishing inside? Is that happening? These two uh, pastors kind of cultural commentators as well, John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers have this illustration. I think it's really, really helpful. So they kind of pose this situation. Imagine you're climbing Mount Everest, climbing Mount Everest, um, tallest mountain in the world, very, very dangerous. And how would you approach this? Like, would you, one way to approach it is to get together with some like-minded friends and get excited about uh, going up with Mount Everest and just kind of say, you know, I don't really want people to tell me how to do this. I'm going to be my own authority. I'm going to go my own way here. And I'm just going to, you know, check, maybe find some equipment online and just kind of take off up the mountain. Grab the kombucha. We'll all get the same kind and just go up the mountain together. Like, like with that, like, no. Hey, this is Mount Everest, right? Like, if I'm going up Mount Everest, by gosh, I'm like finding, where's the, where's the number one Sherpa? Where's the number one Sherpa in, in, in all of Nepal? I'm going to find him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay him what he's worth. 
I'm going to listen to every single word he says, and I'm going to follow him. And he is never going to get out of my sight. Why? Because he's the expert. He's been there, done that before. He knows what he's doing. If my goal is to summit, to clear the, clear the summit of Mount Everest and to not die, those are the two goals here. Like, like to, to make sure those these things happen, I am going to find someone to help me. Not kind of say, I, I'm my own individual. I kind of got this, you know, I've watched a YouTube video on how this works. I'm just going to go up and do this. No. So, so why do we do this with our own lives? Like, why do we think we can throw off all kind of teaching and authority and not have anyone call the shots for us? And I think that leads to frustration, anxiety, um, anger, this, this, this just, just rabid, just, just bitterness that we see, I think, on social media sometimes, this reactionary stuff, because it's not working what our culture is selling us. We have to have a, a better map to show us the way to navigate life because life is brutal. It's hard. We don't know what we're doing as individuals. We need help. We can't just throw off all authority because we think it's oppressing us. And what this leads us to do in the church, at least, is to say, I believe in Jesus. I've got the bumper sticker. I can give you some doctrines, the major points of salvation, and, and say I'm a Christian, but we really don't want Jesus to be our Lord and King. I don't want him to call the shots. Like, I want, the, I want this stuff that I think is, that I'm cool with, but I don't, don't really want the other things that come with being a follower of Jesus. Some examples of what this might look like. In our church, one of the things we say is we want people to be relationally connected and invested in one another's lives. I mean, we think that's the church, right? And the way we do that is through missional communities. So if I was saying how to live under Jesus with rule and authority in his bride, the church that he's given to us, for Providence Road, it's get in a missional community and show up and be consistent and help the leaders lead. When they need help, take a load off their plate. Okay, this is what it looks like to come under the authority of Jesus in Providence Road. Another, an, another thing with this, and we could go on days and days. Another one, though, is, is the ability to say no in our spending to things that we want but don't need. The culture says, hey, you need this. You need this to kind of keep that image up. You need this to feel good. Oh, you need this to escape from your problems. You need this to medicate your anxiety. No, we, we don't need that stuff. So how can we be, have self-control enough to, to be able to say no to the things that we don't really need and actually invest in the kingdom where God is working and moving and his, that, that we can see God's glory be made known. Another one is if someone offends you, instead of sweeping it under the rug and being bitter about it and being fear of conflict, you actually go to that person and tell them, hey, I, there's something not right here. I want to talk to you about something. But we're so terrified of conflict that we hold those things in. We get bitter at other people. And it just punishes ourselves and not the other person. Because oftentimes they don't even know you're bitter with them. But you're just punishing yourself because you're so bitter at that person. Instead of just going to have a conversation. Here's another one. We spend, you know, let's say two hours a day in, in entertainment. And we have time for that. And we'll say Jesus is our Lord and King. But we can't spend ten minutes in the Bible. It's like there's nothing wrong with two hours of entertainment, but if we say we can't spend two hours with our king and our Lord in the scripture, then there, there's something wrong there. One um, illustration on this, I think, and, and it's, 
kind of, I've been thinking a lot about this in the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, 19-year-old John Ernest uh, walked into a synagogue in uh, Poway, California. Probably heard, heard, heard of this. And shot up the place. Killed one person, uh, wounded three others. And things are coming out about him over the last week. And, in his, um, and he's also um, suspected of, of arson at a mosque a month earlier. But he, uh, in, his, in his manifesto and in some of his writings, um, it's come out that um, he was a part, a member of an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Now, Orthodox Presbyterian church, doctrinally, they're not too far from where we're at. So this isn't some crazy, like, like cult. This is a denomination, a, kind of a, a healthy denomination from all those standpoints. And he said in, his, in this manifesto that he said that his actions would glorify the God, the God of the Bible. And he said that um, he, he wrote out his doctrine of salvation in this manifesto. And if you were to read it on paper, he couldn't do any better than most of us in this room. He nails salvation, what it is. So what went wrong? Like, what went wrong with this guy to be filled with so much hate for Jewish people and Muslim people that he would go and do this? What happened? He understood some basic doctrine, but he had no framework for how to live under the king in the kingdom throughout his life. His, 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 uh, his theology, his beliefs were divorced from his ethics, how he lived. Okay, and I think this is a warning for all of us of being able to assent to doctrinal beliefs, kind of check the boxes that a Christian in Oklahoma can check. But when it comes to looking at the scriptures, like we're going to see in Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, Jesus is saying, this is the way of flourishing. I'm going to submit myself to Jesus and follow him in these areas. If, the, if, if, if this, this, this guy's um, uh, beliefs weren't divorced from his ethics, then... I don't think this would have happened. Um, his dad was an elder. Um, I mean, this has kind of been eye-opening for people um, in, our, in, our, in our world because this kind of, kind of hits close to home because this wasn't a, a cult thing. This was a normal Presbyterian church. So what Jesus is going to do in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to deconstruct the worldviews around him, and we should allow him to deconstruct our worldview as well and let him show us a better way. And Jesus wants us to primarily flourish spiritually. That's his primary, is flourishing spiritually, right? And he also wants us, when we flourish, for that to not terminate on ourselves, but that would move outward to other people, that other people would benefit from our flourishing and that God may get the glory. And the last thing I'll say, and this may be the most important thing to understand, is that Jesus isn't showing us just a pathway to flourishing. He's not just saying, hey, here's the pathway to human flourishing. He actually also provides the means through the Holy Spirit and his grace and our faith in him. He actually gives us the power to actually walk that path. So he's saying, here's the path. Now I'm going to give you the spirit to be able to do all the things I'm asking you to do. And that's really, really good news. Or else this would actually crush us. If we just said, we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount and try to do all of it and forget about the spirit and the power he gives us, it would absolutely crush crush us. And you're going to feel it as you, we walk through the sermon. There are some hard, hard things in here for us to hear and obey. So I want to finish the time just to kind of uh, moving into the passage that we're going to look at next week. Um, look at Matthew 4.23. Jesus says, or that Matthew says, Jesus, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's proclaim, preaching the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And so this is the context. So people have heard him. They've been, they, they, he's doing miracles. He's saying the kingdom has come. I've, I'm ushering in the kingdom here through the gospel. And then you come to Matthew 5.1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Seeing the crowds. An interesting phrase there from, from Matthew. We know, what, we know Jesus was very intentional and he saw people. There were places where he said that he, he, he weeped over Jerusalem because they were, like a, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we see him doing ministry. He sees people really, really well, right? So when Jesus saw the crowds, he actually sees them as people. And we know that from his character. So today, as we're listening and hearing this, Jesus sees you. He sees you. He sees your brokenness. He sees the addiction you're involved with. He sees the pain. He sees the suffering. He sees the anxiety. He, 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 he sees the weariness. For moms, he sees how tired you are, how exhausting being a mother can be. He sees it. For women who want to be moms, he sees it. He can empathize with you because he's been there. He sees you. He sees you. So as, as he, it's interesting, he, the whole sermon starts with seeing the crowds. And I think that's really important not to skip over that as like, oh yeah, he just saw the crowds. This is Jesus, the son of God, who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He actually sees individual people as he looks at the crowd. And it says he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, sitting down in this culture was a, was a, was a posture of authority. It's a Jewish rabbi thing. When the rabbi sat down, it was on. Like, okay, I'm teaching. Like, like class is in session now. So everybody would have kind of noticed that when he sat down. And then the mountain. It says he goes up on the mountain. This was not for better acoustics, right? Like maybe that was involved, but there's so much more imagery than that here. And I think the primary thing he's pointing back to, and people would have recognized this, is, is Mount Sinai. When Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God, it happened on top of a mountain. There was authority here. Like these were the tablets from God. And Moses was now kind of dispensing what God had said to his people. And so the, especially the Jewish culture people, they would have seen this happen. They would, say, they would have made that connection clearly. Important things in the scripture happen on top of mountains. So it's just not just about acoustics. It's, about a, it's a statement of authority from Jesus. Like I'm going up to the mountain and this has weight. What I'm about to say has weight and it has meaning. Now, to close, um, Jesus wants us to flourish, right? But that doesn't mean money. It doesn't mean prosperity materially. It doesn't mean good health. It is, that is not what flourishing means to Jesus. Now, it may mean that it, 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 that may happen. And by God's grace, we can thank him for those things. We should. But when Jesus talks about flourishing, he's talking about flourishing in our relationship with him spiritually. So we all know the disciples, the closest guys to follow Jesus, they all died. Most of them died martyrs' deaths or were uh, exiled to die alone, right? So like if anybody could have benefited from following Jesus materially, it would have been these 12, but they all died horrible deaths. So flourishing to Jesus 
is about spiritual flourishing. And there's a lot of junk being taught out there. And I think we just want to make sure that as we move into this, he's not meaning flourishing materially. Although that may happen, and that is not a bad thing. That is not the point of following Jesus. Last thing, and then we're done. This does not mean, the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of these do good things and don't do bad things. That's moralism. That's not what this is. Jesus is offering and he's inviting us into a way that gives us freedom from ourselves to live under his rule, under his reign, which will lead to flourishing. Rather than thinking we're free, having this illusion we're free, and the culture just moving us in however direction the culture wants to move us, with Satan's help and our flesh as well being involved in that. So as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, these are the things we need to keep in mind. And next week, we're going to jump in. We're going to talk about the Beatitudes. What does this idea of blessed mean that that it says comes up so many times? And kind of pick through some of those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for um, Jesus taking this opportunity to sit down and teach us, to show us the way to flourish. That he didn't just say you're saved and you're one of my people and now just try, try real hard and be good people. That's not what he said. He gives us a way to flourish and he gives us the power to be able to do the things he's asking us to do. So I pray as we go through this, Lord, even today, that you would change us. You would make us look more like you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.